Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include CFPB consumer complaints, my interview with economist Elliot Eisenberg on government spending, the Fed's balance sheet, and Eisenbergian economics, and the markets versus the Fed. Today's podcast is brought to you by Encino, makers of the Encino Mortgage Suite for the modern mortgage lender. Encino Mortgage Suite's three core products, Encino Mortgage, Encino Incentive Compensation, and Encino Mortgage Analytics unite the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process. See how Encino can support a home ownership journey that your borrowers and your team will love at Encino.com. Here's a little trivia for the compliance folks in the coffee room. The CFPB handles 20,000 consumer complaints per week, and given that financing a home and then servicing the loan is the largest financial transaction most individuals go through, you got to figure a chunk of the 20,000 involve mortgages. While we're on the CFPB, Director Chopra addressed issues related to refinancing in a hearing on Capitol Hill last Thursday. But the headlines have been grabbed by interest rate improvements in our free market economy, and the economics calendar this week will be highlighted by the U.S. Jobs Report on Friday, arriving just five days before the Federal Reserve's December 13th meeting. It's expected that payroll's growth will rise to 200,000 in November from 150,000 job additions in October, and the unemployment rate to stay steady at 3.9%. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back to the show economist Elliot Eisenberg to talk about government spending and the Fed's balance sheet. He's an internationally acclaimed economist and public speaker, specializing in making the arcana and minutia of economics fun, relevant, and educational. Your email is at graphsandlaughs.net. And I, I want to ask how that came about that you decided you wanted that domain name. And and I'm going to say that because when I was in sixth grade, I read Freakonomics and I was like, oh, economics can be fun. But you seem to add another layer. Economics can also be funny. Where'd you get the graphs and laughs from? I was struggling with what to name my business. Everyone goes through that problem. I could name it, you know, Eisenberg and Associates or something utterly forgettable like that. And that was a bad idea. And, and one day I was literally, you know, just walking around and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm an economist who's funny. Initially, it was going to be laughs and graphs. I think that sounds physically easier off the tongue, but I'm not a funny economist. I'm an economist who's funny. So the graphs have to come before the laughs and it rhymes and it's easy to remember. So it fit all the bills. Well, I eagerly await laughing in this interview. So I'm I'm uh, waiting with bated breath over here. But anyways, let's let's launch into it. And you know, I'm looking, you know, I'm gonna ask you about the US economy. I don't know what's funny about that. I guess we will see. You put out little brief blogs, which which I very much enjoy. And I was reading one about how the US economy is becoming increasingly recession resistant. Say that three times fast. Uh, and it's because state, local, and federal government spending as a percentage of GDP has risen. So can you talk about why you feel like it's risen over time and, and the impact on the economy? Sure. So there was that and it was healthcare. Healthcare is also an important part of the story. It's people want more government services. As we get richer, we expect more. 
We want the government to ins- to act as an insurer of all sorts of things. We want crop insurance. We want health insurance. We want this. We want that. We want all these services. And that's why the government runs these large budget deficits, because we want lots of services and we can't afford them. But we want you know health insurance, all kinds of Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and so on and so forth. You know, when 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 you're starving and you're in, in back in 1920, 1930, 1940, these were unheard of services. Medi- you know, Social Security had just began somewhere around there under Roosevelt. So we keep demanding more from government. So they get bigger. And so I I actually saw a recent video clip of a ex TV personality, and he was talking about how he doesn't think we actually live in a free market economy because there's so much government intervention. Do you agree with that characterization? You know, the, the notion of a, a free market society that we live in is, is actually a fallacy. It, well, <laughs> you can't think of it as binary. You have to think of it as a continuum. And I think that's right. I think we keep tending towards a less and less free market economy. There's less and less of the economy is totally, totally open and and free to market forces. So much of it goes through the, the government's economy, where you go to Washington, you lobby people, they make laws that are favorable to you, and then market systems sort of break down to some extent. But Washington becomes increasingly important, and that's not really a great thing. You, we want the government to regulate things. I understand you need that, and that hurts free markets, but you can't have you know child labor and so on. We'd like the government to get out as much as they can within limits and let markets fight it out. But no company really wants that. So these bigger companies, they get lobbyists and they have their own their own lobbyists, their own corporate lobbyists trying to get an edge with the legislators and the regulators both. And we end up in a worse off situation, more monopoly providers, higher expect more costly services and goods and, and a less free market. Yeah, I hate to say it. Well, you kind of took my next question out of my mouth, and I'll try and make it less binary than the last one. And that's you know, between the state, local, and federal government spending, as well as healthcare spending, it now accounts for more than 50% of GDP. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, somewhere in between? How do you view it? Uh, the question here is twofold. One, how distortionary are these interventions by government? You know, What would our market look like absent these interventions on one hand? It's hard to know. We can make some guesses, but we don't know. Now, the other thing is, are we getting value for money? So let's suppose the interventions are pretty reasonable, and many people could disagree on this, but let's give it the benefit of the doubt. I'm not sure we're getting value for money. Our healthcare costs are exorbitantly high in this country, and life expectancy not doing particularly well. You know, by all these standard measures, us against Europe, Japan, Canada, Australia, whatever developed nations, we're not doing very well. Yet our healthcare costs are easily 50% more uh, than the next highest country, I think Germany and Switzerland or something. So uh, we're paying a lot and we're not getting much for it at the end. So this is really not a good scenario in terms of healthcare, which is very big, you know, which is one seventh of GDP. It's, we're not getting value for money. It's very distressing. And now this merger that may come between Aetna and whoever else they're merging with, maybe Cigna, but I'm not sure. Don't, don't, course, swear me to that. I'm very distressed about that. Well, don't take away my high fructose corn syrup and adding gluten to my gluten in my bread, because that's what that's part of being an American. You know, I, I need those things. <laughs> but, yeah, we eat too much. There's a whole bunch of things, but 
but yeah, healthcare is it's it's not it's too big. We're just not getting what we're paying for. We're paying too much. Well put. So I want to transition slightly here and and talk about the Fed and and kind of the economy in general. So we maybe just maybe oh maybe good old good old Papa Jerome is navigating us toward the fabled soft landing, and, and we've seen in recent weeks here. U.S. consumer spending, inflation, and the labor market have all cooled, which is good. It's what the Fed wants. At what point does the Fed deserve credit? I mean, obviously, they they cut rates drastically when maybe they shouldn't have or enacted easing measures they shouldn't have. But you know, do we owe the Fed any credit for this navigating us towards a soft landing? Are you ready to say that they've done a good job or is it still a wait and see thing for you? You see, if you give them credit for raising rates uh, to high, you know, quickly, they were late to the game, but they raised rates. Much of this inflation coming down has nothing to do with the Fed. It has to do with supply chains. And the inflation went up very rapidly. It's come down pretty quickly, too. This isn't just because the Fed raised rates by 525 bips. There's more going on under the covers. That said, the Fed's doing what it can. So they get credit for, for doing as much as they realistically can. And... Yes, there's a shot at having a soft landing. I don't think we do historically, if you look at the probabilities based on historic odds, the odds are we still get a recession. But let's say I have a high expectation of a very mild recession. I'm more optimistic than I've been, but I'm still a bit of a skunk at the picnic, if if you will. Well put. So it seems like markets have gotten ahead of the Fed four, five, six, six times. Yeah, always. And and I want to ask about that because they're now pricing in a rate cut as soon as May, maybe up to 125 basis points of easing in 2024. Is it is it exuberance? Is it hope? What why does why does the market keep having to correct itself when it comes to the Fed, at least for this tightening cycle? You know, God bless you. I, I wish I knew, but every single you, you're right, five or six times the market was hopeful, then they, they the market adapts to what Powell's thinking, and we have a you know a mild economic uh, stock market downturn, financial conditions tighten, and so on. I think it's just optimism and hubris, optimism. This time is different. People are optimists. We underestimate and Powell, we underestimate him generally. And, and we haven't learned from our mistakes. This is the Fed doesn't learn from their mistakes. I mean, pillory the Fed for that. Well, we should pillory ourselves for not learning from our mistakes too. We're all somewhat optimists or something. I don't know. That's really what it is. It's just you know, Keynesian animal spirits making us think things are better. And the Powell's not going to be as hard as he is. And he really has been hard. I think he's made some errors here, but God bless him. Give him credit for following through on what he says. Well, look, I'd rather live in a society of optimists than pessimists if I had to, to choose one or the other. To, to, I agree. To, to stay on the binary theme here. So you mentioned learning lessons. They, the market hasn't learned. The Fed. Do you think the Fed's takeaway from the last couple of years is we cannot enact easing measures at this rate again? We need to, to sit on our hands a little bit if things are going haywire. What do you think the Fed's takeaways are looking back at the last couple of years? I think the Fed, well, the, the biggest mistake the Fed, Look, the Fed made two, I think, fundamental errors here. One of them I blame them for, and one I don't. I blame them for telling us inflation was transitory. Not only was that wrong, they blasted it from the mountaintops with, with, with horns and bazookas and everything. And they thought it internally would have been bad enough, but they, they advertised their belief. And people believe them because they have better information sources than I do. 
they talk to a bunch of CEOs and business women every day. And if they really believe that's the case, then it's probably the case. That's mistake number one that they made. So they should be much more chaste in their explanations. And The second thing is they were late to raise rates and late to increase quantitative tightening, or start quantitative tightening, the selling of, off of the balance sheet. There, I, I fault them less because no one knows the future. And they didn't. They thought inflation was going to fall early, quicker than it did or wasn't get as high as it did or whatever. And that was another very large strategic error that's come back to haunt them a little bit, I think. And now they don't want to lower rates prematurely because they were late to raise rates back in early 22. So it may be tying their hands slightly. Uh, and I think the other lesson, maybe even a third lesson, these dot plots, I'm not sure these dot plots are helpful. The dot plot back in 21 said, you know, every other meeting they give us a dot of expectations of where Fed funds, unemployment, GDP, and inflation will be, you know, two years, one year, two years, ends, and so on. Two years ago, they were telling us that the Fed funds rate now would be five-eighths of a point. If the Fed raises once more, which I don't think they will, the Fed funds rate will be five and five-eighths of a point. So what's 500 basis points between friends? That's supposed to be a joke, by the way. <laughs> there you go. Finally, I laughed. Uh, well, I'm going to play a little devil's advocate and I'm, uh, this is a layman's devil advocate and please tell me that I'm wrong. Couldn't one argue that inflation was kind of transitory due to supply chain issues rather than an overall demand problem for the economy? Or is that the wrong way of looking at things? Oh, that's actually not a bad way of thinking about it at all. I think it really was. I think you're actually right on spot on. And that the inflation that we got was largely supply chain determined. And uh, of course, additionally, moreover, fiscal stimulus added as well. So here the supply chains break, so there's no supply. And then we, we all have all this money. So we have huge demand and no supply, and the combination is just atrociously awful for inflation. And most of the inflation decline that we've experienced has been the, uh, the, the reversal of all that. We're running out of money and supply chains are better. So yeah, but I think the transitory notion was, eh, you know, two years is not quite transitory in the moment. Historically, they go back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that inflation of 22, you know, 21, 22, it was really transitory. But when you're living it and you're making investments in, in bonds and so on, uh, two years is uh, not transitory. So it's a matter of how far away we get from it. I think, it, I think the longer, the further away from it we are, the more transitory we will think about what we just experienced. It was. Yeah, because it was kind of a quick run up and, and run down if you look at it historically. So you and, and if we moreover, if we avoid a recession, that would add, I think, to the belief that it was transitory and it was really a non-interest related uh, uh, event. You know, the rate hikes didn't really do much to the economy. It was all uh, an exogenous to the interest rates. So you mentioned the Fed's balance sheet an answer or two ago. And, and we started out by talking about how this healthcare spending and government spending has become a larger chunk of GDP. What's the effect on the economy or on uh, security prices by the Fed having such a hefty balance sheet? You know, it's in, in the multi-trillions of dollars. It's eight, I think it's eight trillion now, down from nine. So I, it, it, it's, it's a lot of money, but it's not, and the Fed's going to lower it to maybe six. I don't think they can get it back down before before the housing bust, global financial crisis. It was just under a trillion. It then went to four, and then after the housing bust thing, it went down to about three and a half, and then it jumped up to eight or nine. And now it's going down a bit. 
Well, see, well, this keeps interest rates a little bit lower than they would have been at this point. If they if it falls by a trillion more, it will cause interest rates maybe to rise a little bit. So it's it's preventing it's a it's it's a little bit of like a rate cut a little bit this large balance sheet, but it, they can keep lowering it until something goes wrong. Eventually, something will go wrong. Whatever it is, some plumbing in the system will break, like it did in 2019. Something went wrong back then. They had to stop selling off bonds because something went haywire. I forgot what it was, the repo market or something. They'll lower it some more, but not a lot more. I think they like having this new tool up until recently, until uh, uh, the housing bust. All they had was market intervention directly. They bought and sold treasuries from the New York Fed. But now they have this new tool, the size of their balance sheet. And they're like children. And they have a new, a, new, a new toy to play with. They're not going to give it up. It's like Congress isn't going to give up Fannie and Freddie anytime soon. They like having it up. <laughs> yeah, they like, they like making billions of dollars. Huh, go figure. Billions a quarter. And they kind of like being having a finger in the market. That does too. Yeah, it's good, good business for them. So I want to close with a, a little bit of a fun question here. And, and many people have heard of Keynesian economics. And, and that's actually kind of what we talked about today. Uh, you know, it's it's about how aggregate demand strongly influences economic output and inflation, justifies government intervention through public policies aimed to achieve full employment and price stability. If that's Keynesian economics, well, here, yeah, Google's Google works wonders for my economics uh, parlance. Uh, but I I want to ask you. So if that's Keynesian economics. What is Eisenbergian economics? What is what is your manifesto, Mr. Elliot? My manifesto is to use the framework that works best. So, theoretically, if you're a, if you're a parent, do you if you're if you're if you have kids, do you use the same method to discipline them? For example, every time I'm going to hit you with a stick every time. That's not going to work. Sometimes you want to give a carrot. Sometimes you give a stick. Sometimes you raise their allowance. You cut their allowance. You take them to a ball game. Whatever it is, right? You buy them a cookie. Um, you can't always use the same thing. Life isn't that simple. Sometimes the Keynesian approach works well. Like for example, now things were bad. You give money. That's useful. But sometimes you want to try a Friedman approach, where you're looking more at the money supply, or an Austrian approach, or whatever it is. So you have a toolkit. Of, of, of econometric economic theory to help you pick the one that works best, but be open. Don't be dogmatic, be eclectic and, and then be humble and know that you're going to make a lot of mistakes because no one knows the future, but don't, don't stick with one approach. That's just, that's just wildly simple. And if you look back at Friedman, you know, Friedman, Milton Friedman made a lot of brilliant contributions to economic theory. He was an incredibly smart and very funny and witty guy. He can't focus on the money supply all the time. And Keynesianism has been tortured because what Keynes said, what Keynes said was, look, when things are bad, government should kick in, jump in and spend money and pop up and demand. But the flip side is when things are good, government should raise taxes and reduce aggregate demand. And government never does that. They only follow half of what Keynes. So they're half Keynesians, semi-Keynesians. Which is not helpful. They're 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 they're, they're increasing the deficit and, and we're not inappropriately so for the wrong reasons. So uh, don't be dogmatic. I think that's, that's Eisenbergian economics. I like that. Well, we'll see how Keynesian economics works with this Chinese real estate bubble. But I'm with you. I went to Costco a couple of weeks ago and I bought a bunch of ribeye steaks and I was cooking ribeyes left and right. 
I got tired of it. You know, time to switch. You can play Pebble Beach golf course every day and you want to play something else. So I'm I'm with you. Flex flexibility is key. Uh thank thank you very much for making the time. I always enjoy talking to you and hopefully I'll run into you on the road sometime soon, sir. It was an absolute pleasure. Yes, I hope to see you, your dad, all of us get together soon. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the time. Thank you. As mortgage rates dropped for the fifth consecutive week last week, Federal Reserve Chair Powell said that any speculation of potential rate cuts is still premature. Yes, inflation is easing and the U.S. economy is cooling with Fed policy now well into restrictive territory. The full effect of higher rates is still working its way through the economy, and the central bank has noted progress against inflation over the past six months. The hiking cycle is likely over, but the Fed is reluctant to admit as much or discuss any sort of rate cuts. Economic data over the last week continued to show the U.S. economy is still expanding while inflation trends lower. Real GDP was revised up to 5.2% in the second update from 4.9% in the advance update. Consumer spending on services increased 0.2% in October, and spending on non-durable goods increased 0.3%. The October PCE deflator was unchanged in October and showed prices were 3% higher than 12 months ago the lowest annual reading since March of 2021. While prices are still rising faster than the Fed's preferred rate, the pace continues to slow and bodes well for a soft landing for the U.S. economy. This can also be seen in housing prices, which rose 0.7% in September and 3.9% from one year ago, according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Home Price Index. While elevated mortgage rates help the slowdown, Limited available for sale inventory has kept prices from outright declines. As a result of the continued progress on inflation and recent Fed comments around being well into restrictive territory, the markets expect the Fed is done hiking and will begin to cut rates in 2024. This week's economic calendar contains several higher-tiered releases, including the November payrolls report and preliminary December consumer sentiment on Friday. Between now and then, we will receive ISM services for November, some labor market indicators, wholesale trade, and consumer credit. The week kicks off with just factory orders for October, due out later this morning. We begin Monday with agency MBS prices roughly unchanged from Friday evening, the 10-year yielding 4.25 after closing last week at 4.23%, and the two-year at 4.61%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Did you know there are rent-a-boyfriend Christmas packages? You can get your order in now. The silver package is $75 and a plate and includes two hours at dinner, matching jackets, and he'll tell a few jokes. The gold is $150 and a plate, includes three hours at dinner, a cute backstory about how you met, details about what he does for a living, and he'll call your dad Pops. And the platinum package is $350 and a plate and a to-go plate. It lasts all day. He'll tell you he loves you in front of the whole family, kiss your mom on the cheek, help clean up after dinner, and remembers your favorite flower. Thanks again to Encino, makers of the Encino Mortgage Suite for the Modern Mortgage Lender. Encino Mortgage Suite's three core products, Encino Mortgage, Encino Incentive Compensation, and Encino Mortgage Analytics, unite the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, 
access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.